Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. The only thing necessary for evil to prevail is that good men and women do nothing. I am simply a mouthpiece for good people from around the world who want to make a difference. The engagement and the involvement of ordinary people is what is going to change our criminal justice system. Many have tried and failed. The only difference between them and me is I'm bringing an army with me. This is Truth and Justice. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. I'm your host, Bob Ruff, and in this episode, we are going to finally look into the man that Detective Kyle Royster deemed the most likely suspect in the murder of Keao Gove's case when he relinquished the case in 1993. In Royster's final report in the investigation, he stated that he believed that Kenneth Ray Williams was indeed the suspect in this case. But unless an eyewitness came forward, it could never be proven. Prior to this week's episode, we've only had bits and pieces of information about Kenneth Ray Williams. Well, thankfully, we finally received our open records request from the Dallas Police Department, and I also want to offer a very special thanks to listener Paul Day, who served his boots on the ground and actually went to the clerk's office and tracked down some of these records that will be discussed today. But thanks to both that records request and Paul Day's assistance, we now know just about everything there is to know about Kenneth Ray Williams. And we're going to start the episode today by breaking down Kenneth Ray Williams' criminal background. Prior to today's episode, we knew that Kenneth Ray Williams had been in prison three times. In 1982, he was sentenced to 10 years for aggravated robbery with a deadly weapon. He served part of that sentence, was released, and in 1989, he was convicted and sentenced to five years for arson. And in 1995, he was convicted and sentenced to 35 years for sexual assault by mouth. And it was for that offense that Williams was just recently granted parole. He's currently what is known as the nine-month program a type of halfway house, and in early 2018, Kenneth Ray Williams, now at 65 years old, will be a free man. So who is Kenneth Ray Williams? Williams is a black male. In 1995, he was 5'11 and 220 pounds. He was born in June of 1952, and he had his first official run-in with the law at 21 years old in 1973. I'm going to break down here some of Kenneth Ray Williams' offenses just very quickly until we get to the ones where we have the most information. On July 27, 1973, Williams was charged with burglary. He was convicted and his sentence was a fine. Then on October 20, 1975, he was convicted of possession of marijuana. He was convicted and confined for one day. On August 14, 1976, 
he was arrested for public order crimes, criminal mischief. He was convicted and given one-year probation, fines, and court costs. A few months later, on January 13, 1977, he was again arrested for possession of marijuana. And there's nothing in this report as to how that case was disposed. But then on March 17, 1978, he was arrested for aggravated assault with a deadly weapon. On that same date, there's another charge for robbery. The disposition for what looks like both charges says convicted in confinement for two years. Now, these two years don't show up in my state prison records. However, it is noted on this report that he was paroled and given mandatory supervision to the Dallas County Jail in 1982. And that notation is from the Texas Department of Corrections. So I believe there was a two-year prison sentence that was not listed in my records. Then, on June 18, 1980, at 11.30 p.m., Kenneth Ray Williams was caught in his, to this point, most serious offense. In order for you to understand exactly how this went down, I'm going to read to you directly from the report narrative. I want to warn you before I start reading this narrative, there is some extremely uncomfortable and offensive language in this narrative. It'll take me about two minutes to read it if you want to skip ahead. I'm going to redact the victim's names. Summary of the case. The victim, a 23-year-old black female, and her friend, a 25-year-old black female, were waiting for a bus. This defendant stopped in a car driven by Gary Koss, black male, 23, and offered the two complainants a ride. The complainants accepted and thought they were being taken where they asked to go. The defendant got in the back seat with one of the victims and was trying to feel on her, and when she stopped him, he got very belligerent, saying that they were just going to sell pussy anyway. This defendant then pulled the knife and took the purse from the victim. He then demanded the purse from the other victim, saying, if you bitches ain't going to fuck us now, we're going to put you out because we ain't no freebies. This defendant then forced both victims out of the car, and the two girls got the license plate number off the car. The two complaints got a ride to where they called the police and reported the offense. Now what I'm reading from here is a case summary, and it goes on, and there's testimony from both victims and the driver of the vehicle. And take note here, it is in this offense in 1980 where we first hear the alias Pete for Kenneth Ray Williams. We find it in some later reports, but this is the first time that I've seen it. His accomplice referred to Kenneth Ray Williams as Pete. And as the report goes on, it says that Kenneth Ray Williams, a.k.a. Pete, threatened both of the victims with a knife in order to get them to leave their purses. He was charged with aggravated assault and robbery, and I believe sentenced to two years. It looks like Kenneth Ray Williams was out at large for a couple of years before he was caught up in another aggravated robbery. I do not have those reports. But the two were combined together in 1982. He was sentenced to 10 years in prison. We don't know exactly when he was released in prison in the 80s, but we know he didn't serve the full 10 years. And in 1989, he was again arrested, and this time convicted of arson and sentenced to five more years in prison. He was released from prison on that offense within a year prior to Kiao Gove's murder. Now, up to this point, when he was released from prison after the arson, we only have record of Kenneth Ray Williams being violent in one incident. However, I have my doubts that that's the only time he ever was violent. Most likely, it was just the only time he ever got caught. I can't imagine that the incident with the two women in the car, where he pulled a knife and forced them to leave their purses, was the first time he ever threatened anyone with a deadly weapon. In fact, in that particular case, Kenneth Ray Williams' accomplice wrote an affidavit. Let me read you a brief excerpt from the affidavit. First of all, it starts off saying, I was with, quote, Pete, whose real name is Kenneth Williams. 
Now, a little further down the affidavit, the accomplice, Gary Koss, says the following, quote, Pete said, stop the car again, and I said, I'd better put you ladies out. I then stopped the car, and I heard Pete when he popped the knife open. I looked back and saw Pete with the knife. The girls were getting out of the car, and Pete yelled at them to leave the damn purses. Pete reached over the seat and grabbed the purse from the girl that was sitting in the front seat, and the one that was in the back seat threw her purse back in. I said, say, man, you're crazy. And he said, spin off, man, spin off. I cruised off slow and didn't speed up until I knew where I was going to turn. I was nervous and one of the girls was still near the car, so I never did speed off. After we got away, Pete said, quote, This is what I do. I don't bullshit. Then he said, Fuck them whores. End quote. So while this offense in 1980 was the first time that Kenneth Ray Williams was caught for violence with a deadly weapon, in his own words, according to his accomplice, quote, This is what I do. I don't bullshit. So like I said earlier, I do not have a lot of information on the arson case from 1989. I don't even have an exact date of when he was let out of prison. Next, we're going to talk about Kenneth Ray Williams' first offense that relates him back to Keow's case. Remember at trial, the prosecution offered into evidence a steak knife that Kenneth Ray Williams had used in an assault. Now, I believe the purpose for entering the steak knife was for no other purpose than to try to head off the defense who was intending to present Kenneth Ray Williams as a viable alternate suspect. They introduced the knife and had the forensic examiner testify that there was nothing on this knife linking it back to Kiao's murder. But where did the knife come from? Well, it came from a May 20th, 1992 offense, about 10 months after Kiao's murder. This particular offense is actually reminiscent of a popular television show that was airing in 1992. Many of you listening right now may remember the show In Living Color. In Living Color. Now, in mentioning this, I mean no disrespect to the victim, but I just found the MO here interesting, and it immediately reminded me of the In Living Color character, Homie the Clown. And it makes me wonder if that character had any influence on Kenneth Ray Williams' behavior here. Here's the narrative from the initial report on this offense, dated May 20th, 1992. The complainant stated, while arguing with the suspect, things got out of hand. Suspect reached into his pocket, pulling out a rock wrapped in a cloth, and struck the complainant in the back of the head. The complainant fell to the ground and started to run, at which time the suspect pulled out a knife and threatened to kill him. Upon the officer's arrival, complainant was being treated by paramedics, and the complainant accompanied the officers to the suspect's location. The suspect was found at a friend's home sitting in a chair by the door with a knife on the floor beside him. The suspect was apprehended and taken to jail. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So the knife that was offered into evidence at trial that had to do with Kenneth Ray Williams' aggravated assault was this knife where Kenneth Ray Williams hit a man over the head with a rock wrapped in a rag during an argument and then pulled a knife, threatened to kill him, and left. He was apprehended shortly thereafter by police and still had the knife sitting there right next to him. Forensic examination found no blood or hair on the knife whatsoever. Between this offense and 1995, Kenneth Ray Williams was in and out of the county jail a few times for parole violations and failure to appear, It was on March 30th of 1995. Now, as far as our timelines go, that would be after Jesse Eldridge was arrested, but prior to his trial. Kenneth Ray Williams committed his last crime as a free man. Now, one thing that I want to point out here is that when I had originally talked about this offense on the podcast several months ago, we said that there were three counts or three charges of aggravated assault by mouth. At the time, it appeared that Kenneth Ray Williams was a serial sexual offender. What we know now is that there was only actually one victim and one attack. It's not clear why the three charges, but he was only convicted of one. And given the narrative, he only committed one of these acts. But as you're about to hear, one was enough. In order to get the narrative exactly right, I'm going to read to you directly from Kenneth Ray Williams' trial transcripts. What you're about to hear is the victim testifying. Now again, as before, I want to issue a trigger warning. This victim is describing an extremely violent and disgusting attack. There are words that you're not going to like. The entire context of the narrative is awful. So there's the trigger warning, and now I'm going to move on to the direct testimony of the victim in Kenneth Ray Williams' 1995 aggravated sexual assault by mouth offense. From the best I can understand, this particular victim was a homeless woman. As some background from what I found in the appellate documents, it's my understanding that Kenneth Ray Williams gave a homeless woman a ride into a parking garage. There were several people in the parking garage. He began to threaten them and then forced the one victim to perform oral sex on him. This is her account of that night. Question. You saw Mr. Williams strike this other lady down there. Yes. What effect did that have on you at that point? It scared me really bad. I immediately wanted to get up and leave. All right, did anyone leave at that point? Yes. Who left? Both the ladies. And I got up behind them to leave. At that point, how long had you been downstairs? Maybe 10 minutes. Those two individuals got up to leave? Yes. Did they walk up the ramp? Yes. What did you do when you saw them leaving? I grabbed my cigarette case and proceeded to get up and leave behind them. Now, when you started making your way up the ramp, what did the defendant say to you? He asked me where I was going. What did you reply? I told him that I had to go to the bathroom. Was he sitting on blankets or was he standing up at that point? He was standing. Is he, as far as size, how tall are you? Five foot four and a half. Is the defendant taller than you are? Yes. Is he bigger than you are? Yes. How close to you was he and were you trying to leave when he asked you where you were going? 
about from where I am right here to maybe the middle of this first desk. Anywhere from five to six feet from you? Did you turn your back to him and start going up the ramp? Yes, I did. After you said that you were going to the restroom, what did he reply? He told me I could use the restroom down there. What happened at that point? That's when I began to run up the incline. Where was he when you began to run? Right behind me, after me, behind me. Did he catch up to you? Yes. Where did he grab you? He grabbed my arm and the back of my blouse. Did you continue to try to get away as he was grabbing you? Yes. What happened at that point when he grabbed you? I fell and hit the concrete and... Was he right behind you? Yes, he was still holding on. What happened when he was holding on to you? Were you able to get out of the parking garage? No. Where did you go? He drug me back down to the blankets. How far were you from the blankets from where this... When he dragged you, how many steps were you able to take and get away from him? I'm not really sure. I was struggling pretty much. I really don't know. All right, when you say he dragged you back to the blanket, how was he doing this? Explain this to the jury as best you can remember. Did he have you on the ground dragging you along the ground, or did he just have a hold of you? I was on the ground at the beginning when I fell, and somehow, because of me struggling, I was still trying to get away. Somehow I got up. I managed to stand to my feet, but he was still holding on to me. Through the struggle, he overpowered me, and I found myself being thrown down onto the blanket. Who was left in the underground parking garage at that point? Just he and I. Did you notice any other individuals down there? No, I kept focus on him. When he threw you down to the blankets, what did he say to you? He told me to take off my pants, and I told him no. I was still squirming. He just repeated, take off my pants. His fist was balled up. I felt, let me stop you right there. When you say his fist was balled up, when he is telling you to take off your pants, what was the defendant doing? What was his position he was in? He had his fist raised towards you? Yes. How close to you was he when you were on the blanket? Is he standing up? Is he sitting down? Where was he? He's standing up right in front of me, straddling me. Did you take off your pants and panties? Yes, I was scared. What was done with your pants and panties? He pulled them the rest of the way off. Where did he put them? At that point, I don't know. He just took them off of me. After he pulled your pants, explain to the jury what did you have on that day. I had on tennis shoes, burgundy pants, a blouse. I can't remember the color. Did you have on panties? Light pink panties. The pants and the panties, are those the only articles of clothing that he took off of you? Yes. After he took your pants and panties, what did he say at that point? He told me to suck his dick. Where was he? You're on the blanket at that point, is that correct? Yes. When he told you to do this, what was the position the defendant was in? He was directly in front of me, straddling, standing. Did he do anything with his pants at that point? He undid his pants and pulled his penis out and held it and repeated to suck his dick. And I kept telling him no, no. When you say he was straddling over you at your waist, closer to your chest... Did he keep coming towards you or what? He was right in front of me. His... What did he do? You said he pulled his penis out. Was his penis erect? Yes. Was he holding it? Yes, he was holding it. He kept walking closer and closer to me with his fist, telling me, Did you try to get away from him? I was scooching back and back, and I was leaning and moving my head. I was afraid. I didn't want to get hurt. At some point, did he actually put his penis in your mouth? Yes. Did it actually penetrate your mouth? Yes, I couldn't help it. I couldn't help it. I was scared. That's as far as I'm going to read of this transcript. It almost brings tears to my eyes just reading it. It's awful. 
And there's absolutely no question that this is exactly what happened. Because the victim's friends who ran up the ramp immediately grabbed a police officer. And shortly after this point, they rushed down into the parking garage and caught Kenneth Ray Williams in the act. He was arrested right there. And he hasn't stepped foot out of a jail or prison since that day in 1995. That is until next year when he's finally paroled. To this day, he served 22 years of his 35-year sentence. And when I read a transcript like that, I can't help but think, that's not enough. After going through all of Kenneth Ray Williams' criminal history, there's one thing that I can say with all certainty. Kenneth Ray Williams, a.k.a. Pete, is a disgusting human being. The things that he has done to the women in the car, to the man that he was arguing with, to the poor woman in the basement parking garage in 1995, the man has zero respect for human life, which no doubt is one of the reasons that he became the prime suspect in the murder of Kiao Go. Now we're going to take a quick break here for our sponsor, and then we're going to walk through chronologically Kenneth Ray Williams' part in the investigation into Kiao's death. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. As we move on into our discussion of Kenneth Ray Williams, I'm going to walk you through chronologically all of the police reports that mention Williams. The first time we hear about him comes on July 3rd, 1992, almost a year after Kiao's murder. This was a Crime Stoppers tip that Christopher Lamar Williams, now that's Kenneth Ray Williams' nephew, had information that his uncle was involved in Kiao's murder. However, on that same day, Royster spoke with Christopher Williams, and he denied having any information about the case. He said that all he knew was what was heard on the news and from a flyer posted on a pole in the neighborhood. The next report comes a little over two weeks later on July 21, 1992. This is the report we read several months ago. Officer Ermettinger wrote, I received a phone call from a black female who was calling from a payphone. She stated that she had information regarding the complainant Gove Kiao. She stated she was at a Tupperware party on a recent Saturday after the party, some of the ladies were talking about this offense. The ladies at the party were talking about a man whose sister lived on their street. One of the ladies said the man killed the Vietnamese lady. He disappeared right after the murder and has not returned to the neighborhood since. The unknown lady has seen the suspect before, but only described him as a black male. She did know the suspect's sister, though, and gave the following information. She then gives Barbara Williams' address and phone number. The suspect's sister sells Tupperware. 
This unknown black female had the information posted regarding the reward. I informed her to call Crime Stoppers and to call Detective Royster. She would not give her name, but said she may at a later date. She said she is a single mother who wants to remain anonymous at this time. So now, all of a sudden, it's been less than three weeks, and we have two different people calling the police saying they had information that Kenneth Ray Williams was the one who killed Kiao. Now, for context's sake, these tips came in two months after the offense where Williams hit the man over the head with a rock and threatened him with a knife. Later, on July 27th, Royster made contact with Barbara Williams. She said that her brother didn't live there, but her husband's brother, Kenneth Ray Williams, lived with them. Then Royster talked to Mr. Williams, and he could not recall the time period when Kenneth Ray had stayed with him at his home. He told Royster that Kenneth must reside somewhere in West Dallas, but he did not know the address. On that same day, Detective Royster ran an ID check on Kenneth Ray Williams. The check came back that Mr. Williams was arrested on May 20th, 1992 for aggravated assault where he used a rock and a knife as a weapon. It was discovered during this check that Williams had been transported to TDC, that's Texas Department of Corrections, on July 16th, just 11 days before this check. So this, if you remember back to the investigation, is when Royster got a lead and he found out that the suspect was actually in prison. Then, on November 13, 1992, Detective Royster and Detective Marcus Sharp interviewed Kenneth Ray Williams, also known as Pete, in the prison. Williams denied having any knowledge of the offense, but remember that Royster noted that he was trying to lie to him about his previous offenses. At this point, Williams was scheduled for release from the prison on April 10, 1993, and he did eventually admit that he was living in the area with his brother during the time this offense occurred. This was about the time when Royster said that he's the prime suspect, but unless a witness comes forward, it can't be proven. Royster then gave up on the case. Then on July 14, 1993, Ken Gove started writing letters to the mayor and to the police chief. We find a note in the report from a Sergeant DeCorte who says that Ken called him. This report reads as follows. Mr. Gove called me last week and wanted to know the status of a possible suspect that Royster had interviewed sometime in the past. I checked the records and was able to determine he was referring to Kenneth Ray Williams. Williams had been sent to TDC for a parole violation in 1992. A check with TDC revealed that he had been paroled again April 1993 to Houston, Texas. I contacted his parole officer, Cassie Mose, Houston. She told me that Williams was supposed to have reported to her on July 2nd, but had failed to do so. She was in the process of issuing a warrant. Then a month later, Watts takes over the case. On August 17th, he contacted the Houston Police Department and found out that Williams was wanted for a parole violation. Watts asked the Houston detective to check to see if there were any other similar offenses in Houston that would match the same M.O. as Keow's murder. Now, this is the day, that August 17th, when Watts was working fast and furious to try to solve this case. On that same day, he contacted Christopher Lamar Williams again, who was the nephew of Kenneth Ray Williams. Christopher again denied ever saying anything about his uncle killing Keow Gove. But one thing that I notice here in the report is that when asked about Kenneth Ray Williams' habits, Christopher says, quote, his uncle always got up after the rest of the family. He goes on to say that he'd never seen him bloody or beat up, and that he had never told anyone that he or his uncle killed the complainant. But it's an interesting point here. Remember, Kiao was attacked around 7.30 in the morning, and it sounds like Chris is saying that Kenneth is never awake that early. We move forward to August 26, so about 10 days later, and Watts asked Gladys Blanford to call him, 
because she wants some information about the report that Gladys had made that her brother, who worked ministering to inmates in TDC, had told her that one of William's cellmate had told him that Kenneth had been talking about the murder. Later that same day, Watts contacted a Joe Nesbeth with TDC and asked for the names of all of Kenneth Ray Williams' cellmates he had when he returned to TDC in July of 92. It was later that same day that Watts found the report from May 20th of 1992 when Williams was arrested for the aggravated assault involving the rock and the knife. It was at this point that Watts checked the knife out of the property room and transported it to the Forensic Institute where he requested that the knife be tested for human blood and for the knife to be compared to Kiao's wounds and also to check for any fibers. It's noted here that the knife was a steak knife. A few weeks later, on September 11, 1993, Watts reached back out to Gladys Blanford. Again, he asked her for the information that her brother had, and Blanford said she'd speak with him again. Two weeks later, on September 28th, Watts contacted the state police to find out what the status was of Williams' warrant. He did indeed have a warrant out for his arrest due to a parole violation. Watts then contacted Williams' parole officer and confirmed that she was still looking for Williams. And the next notation we have here is from October 30th, and it reads as follows. Contacted Ms. Blanford again about the information that her brother has. She said that her brother still refuses to say who he spoke with, but that the conversation did occur while at TDC. Now, bringing this back into the context of the investigation that we were already aware of, it was in October when Carol Eldridge first called Detective Watts and told her to get a hold of Troy because he knew something about the murder. So from this point forward, while Watts is still continuing to investigate Williams, at the same time, he's leaning on Troy Eldridge and trying to get him to write an affidavit. So this report is from November 23, 1993, and it says an unknown male caller this time contacted Sergeant DeCorti and told him that a female who he refused to give her name told him that the person who killed the Oriental lady had lived at 9912 Mill Valley, the house that has the Mary Kay sign in the front yard. The caller indicated that he was interested in the reward offer. He said that he would call back with more information. Point of reference, that address that he just gave is the address that Kenneth Ray Williams was staying at during the time of the murder. This is now, count them, the third Crime Stoppers tip that has come in suggesting that Kenneth Ray Williams is the murderer. Then we move all the way into January of 1994. Now, at this point, Watts still doesn't have an affidavit from Troy. He got his first one at the end of February. So note the gap here in the investigation into Williams. From August till November, there's report after report after report, all pointing towards Williams. In late October and then early November, Watts first makes contact with Troy Eldridge, and we see nothing into the investigation of Kenneth Ray Williams during the month of December until halfway through the month of January. If you were trying to make some guesses here as to what was going on, it would seem that about the middle of January, Watts was starting to feel he wasn't going to get anywhere with Troy, and he jumps back to Kenneth Ray Williams. There are several reports where they're looking for Williams, and what it seems that he's trying to do is to get Williams picked up on a parole violation, likely so he can use that as leverage. And by January 19th, he was able to do just that. This report reads as follows. Kenneth Williams was arrested by the Southwest Deployment Unit and taken to Capers. He was interviewed by Watts and Hammer, but the results were negative. He did agree to take a polygraph test. And in this new open records request, I actually have a copy of this polygraph test. The test was given that same day on January 19, 1994, 
Williams was asked two relevant questions. Question number 33, which states, In July 1991, did you stab that Oriental woman? Answer, no. Then the other relevant question, number 35, states, Did you stab that Oriental woman in July of 1991? Answer, no. The result, it states, Based on the evaluation of the subject's polygrams, it is this examiner's opinion that he was deceptive when he answered no to relevant questions 33 and 35. After Williams failed the polygraph test, Watson Harding then re-interviewed his nephew, Christopher Williams. At this point, Christopher complained that Watts was harassing him and that he was going to tell his mother. The last paragraph of this report reads, The first time Watts interviewed Williams, he was somewhat uncertain when his uncle was staying with his family. Williams now said that he is sure that his uncle was not staying with the family the week the complainant was found. He again denied telling anyone that his uncle was involved in the murder. The next report is dated January 22, 1994, three days later. The report reads as follows. Contacted Ken Gove and updated him on the investigation. He is planning to put out some more flyers requesting information on his wife's murder. We discussed Williams' arrest, and Mr. Gove said that everyone that lives on the block where Williams' brother lives seems to think that Williams is the suspect. All the persons that Mr. Gove has talked to do not have any evidence of the fact, only the feeling about Williams. Now, this next report is dated February 18, 1994. The context of this report is interesting, but when we put all this together, I think that it becomes pretty telling. The report reads, contacted Amos Williams at his workplace. I asked him if he recalled telling the assigned detective that his brother was living with him when the murder occurred. He said that his brother was staying there during that week on and off, but could not be sure if he had been there the day the murder occurred. He did confirm that his daughter had accused his brother of redacted. He said that this occurred after she had been caught taking some of his checks. He didn't know who to believe, his brother or his daughter. Mr. Williams said that he had not heard about his brother having any problems with any young girls in the area. Mr. Williams also said that he did not think Christopher knew anything about the murder, nor did he ever make a statement that his uncle had killed Mrs. Gove. I asked Mr. Williams what his brother's habit was when staying with him as far as disappearing for hours and roaming the streets. Mr. Williams said that his brother would stay near the house and talk with the children. I also asked what time his brother would get up in the mornings. Mr. Williams said that his brother would still be in bed when he left for work, which is about 7 a.m. So that's it. That's the end of Detective Watts' investigation into Kenneth Ray Williams. He comes on hot and heavy from August through October. Then he seems to back off for six weeks or so. Then in January, he's right back on the trail. And then he ends his investigation with a statement, Mr. Williams said that his brother would still be in bed when he left for work, which is about 7 a.m. No explanation. He just stops. Well, this statement just happens to be written exactly five days before Troy Eldridge finally wrote his first affidavit. It seems that when you put all of this together... The detective Watts certainly thought that Kenneth Ray Williams was the best lead in this case, until he finally convinced Troy Eldridge to tell his story. And we have one more piece of evidence that is further proof of this theory, and that's the Crime Stoppers tip that was mentioned last week. So with all the information that Watts has, someone who works at the prison who says that a cellmate told him that Kenneth Ray Williams committed the murder. He gave Kenneth Ray Williams a polygraph test, and he failed. 
there have been three separate Crime Stoppers tips indicating that Kenneth Ray Williams committed the murder. Kenneth Ray Williams has a violent past and on at least two separate occasions used a knife to threaten his victims. It's discovered by his own brother that Kenneth Ray Williams was living in the area at the time of the murder. Several reports of strange black males wandering the streets about the same time Kiao was killed. The list goes on and on. But as soon as Watts gets Troy Eldridge to write his first story, Kenneth Ray Williams completely drops from the narrative. And he doesn't just drop from the narrative. He is suppressed from the narrative. Because remember, on July 25th, 1995, after Jesse's arrest, but before trial, the following tip came in. Quote, An informant reports that suspect Kenneth Williams, a.k.a. Pete, is responsible for the murder of the pastry cook at Spruce High School in the summer of 1991. Clearly, Watts did not want to hear anything about Kenneth Ray Williams, because there's no indication in the report that he ever followed up on this lead, and this Crime Stoppers tip was not included in the DA's file. I don't know if any of this information makes Kenneth Ray Williams innocent or guilty. Everything we've discussed today is circumstantial. But what I do know is that Kenneth Ray Williams was a lead that should have been followed up on. Don Watts was a skilled detective, and I refuse to believe that he looked Troy Eldridge in his beady little eyes and believed one word that came out of his mouth. Jesse asked me on the phone yesterday, through tears, what did I ever do to Don Watts and Howard Blackman? just kept saying he can't understand why they did this to him. That's a hard thing to listen to, and it's even harder to give an answer. Because the reality of it is, I think we all know the answer. Don Watts didn't have a problem with Jesse Eldridge, and neither did Howard Blackman. The problem was that neither Watts or Blackman ever considered Jesse anything more than a number. He wasn't even a human being to them. He was just a convicted felon. And once Ken Gove started writing letters to the mayor, and the mayor to the police chief, and the police chief to Detective Watts, all they cared about was closing this case. They didn't give a damn if they got the right person. As long as they got a person. Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Mike Bussing is our executive producer. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com. Thank you to Tate Cooper for designing and creating our logo. Thank you to Chris Brinkley for creating, managing, and maintaining our website. And thank you to our transcription team, Sarah, Tammy, Britta, and Stephanie. I also want to thank Desiree Dunn for printing and mailing the transcripts to both Jesse and Ed. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your support and engagement. Keep sending in your thoughts, theories, and ideas to theories at truthandjusticepod.com and like our Facebook page or follow us on Twitter at truthjusticepod. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.
It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.